I'm Gregory Berg. The studios of WGTD are closed this week because of the holidays, so we're devoting our podcasts to re-sharing some memorable morning show interviews from earlier in 2023, this week focusing on interviews that were with local or state guests. Today's is a very special conversation indeed, which I was privileged to record back in August with a legend in the world of public radio, Jack Mitchell. Here's that conversation. Enjoy. And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. It is with a very special, exceptional sense of privilege and pleasure that I uh, announce that my morning show guest today is none other than Jack Mitchell. And anybody who knows public radio, the history of public radio, and the history of Wisconsin public radio in particular, and anyone who listens to uh, All Things Considered should know or needs to know the name Jack Mitchell, a really towering figure in the history of public radio, someone who was at NPR right from the start, who helped to shape All Things Considered, that afternoon news magazine that so many of us have listened to for so long, and then had a very significant role in the growth and development of Wisconsin public radio. And I'm so pleased that Jack Mitchell uh, was willing to make time in his schedule to have a conversation about his career in public radio and specifically his legacy with Wisconsin Public Radio and, uh, and what he sees in terms of, of the future role of public radio uh, in all of our lives. Jack Mitchell, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. I want to mention that a long, long, long time ago, uh, this would be back sometime in the uh, late 80s or early 90s, I remember you coming to Kenosha and to WGTD and uh, giving us the opportunity to to meet you, and uh, I appreciated that encounter so much, and uh, one or two brief encounters we've had over the years since then, and I really feel privileged to be able to speak with you today. Um Tell our listeners, first of all, a little bit about where you come from originally and what first fueled your interest in being part of the world of radio at a time when I assume there was almost nothing on the horizon that was called public radio. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, Well, I was born in Detroit and raised in the Detroit area. And and I will, this was 1941 when I was born, and so TV was not around yet, and I listened to a lot of radio and liked it uh, a lot. And so it was things like The Lone Ranger and The Green Hornet and these shows that uh, some of them came out of Detroit, uh, but uh, and I was... This wasn't direct in a way, but when we moved to the Detroit suburbs in the 1950s, it happened that our next-door neighbor was a man named Fred Foy, who uh, was the announcer-narrator of The Lone Ranger on radio. (laughs) And so I got to know him, and I was interested in radio before that anyway, but... uh, and I worked for him sort of as his assistant for a while. So that was the beginning of it. And he actually got me my first job in radio uh, at a little FM station in Detroit. Uh, but it really happened when I and I thought I'd go be in commercial radio news. 
And I did a little bit of that, but uh, I realized that it was pretty superficial. And it turns out that I was at the University of Michigan, which had an educational radio station called WUOM, the University of Michigan station. And I went to work for them for several years as uh, doing more substantial news. And uh, I found it much more satisfying. And um, as it turns out, the Public Broadcasting Act was under discussion. This was the Lyndon Johnson, part of the Great Society. And uh, it was uh, fomented by television. Uh, Public television or educational television was a pretty substantial operation, largely funded by the Ford Foundation. And But they needed federal money to achieve the kind of hopes that they were thinking of. And so they set up something called the Carnegie Commission to, uh, be, to look into setting up a structure for public television. And the, as it turns out, and this is sort of how it all, it all played out for me, the University of Michigan did not have a public television station. It had a public radio station or an educational radio station. And two of the people I worked for were not going to let that happen, that radio would have to be included in this, uh, uh, in the the Public uh, Broadcasting Act, which was supposed to be the Public Television Act. And so they went to work uh, lobbying, and to get this thing changed. And I was right there. I was with them. You know, I wasn't lobbying, but I was here back what was going on And as they went off to Washington to talk to the various people. And so I made the the decision at that point that I would sort of cast my hopes on this development, that if radio would get in it and I would uh, be a part of it. And so I was uh, also, the alternative was to become a professor. And so I got myself a Ph.D. at the University of Illinois and was prepared uh, to go either way. As it turns out, the Public Television Act was modified to become the Public Broadcasting Act. Radio was included reluctantly. But but it was essentially understood that 10% of the money would go to radio, 90% to television. Hmm. So that was uh, so I got myself acquainted with uh, the people who were going to I thought run public radio nationally, uh, and they they seemed to like me, <laughs> and so I was picked by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to spend a year at the BBC in London studying how they did things. And the idea was that I would come back and be part of the new national network, uh, which turned out to be National Public Radio. And I did. I came back from London in June, and in August uh, I was hired as the first employee of NPR, and then uh, and the rest is history. We went from there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious. You you mentioned that it was only with great reluctance that the Public Broadcasting Act was amended, so it would include radio, albeit uh, at a very modest level of funding. 
compared to what was going to be given uh, to, to public television. Do you have any sense of what the source of that reluctance was? I mean, did they just not want to be bothered, or did they see something counterproductive in such a... Yeah, it was money. Well, 10% of the money was 10% of the money, and television wanted it all. And they had done all the work. You know, they, ah. had, they had done the lobbying. They had done all the research. They funded, they got the Carnegie Commission. That was their commission, you know. <laughs> and then radio tried to sneak in the back door. And frankly, it was a little underhanded the way they did it, you know, lobbying uh, behind the scenes, threatening to uh, go public, threatening to scuttle the whole bill. You know, it, it, was, it was kind of empty threats because, uh, you know, they, what power did educational radio had? It was very, you, you don't understand, nobody understands that now how weak educational radio was. And it only existed in about maybe 25 states. Uh, the rest of the country didn't have it at all, and they were little university stations, often student-run, and not terribly professional. Uh, it was, you know, it's a pathetic system compared mm. to what it, what television had been back in the 1960s. So it's not surprising that they thought it was a waste of money, but uh, it turns out that it, there was probably more potential for public radio than there was for public television. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, I appreciate you uh, sharing this particular facet of the story because it helps us even more deeply appreciate uh, what, what, what came ultimately to fruition. Tell us a little bit about that year you spent in London studying the BBC. Uh, coming back from there, did you find yourself, uh, in a sense, equipped with really valuable lessons you learned there? A couple of things. One, uh, I worked on what they called magazine programs. Uh, they, were, they had four of them during the day on the BBC Radio 4, and I worked on two of them, the, uh, the morning show and then the, what they, uh, their 11 o'clock at night, or I guess it was 10 o'clock at night show, and then they had a couple of others that I was not, well, I worked on them very briefly. Uh, but so I learned how that all works. The, uh, you know, granted, they had big staffs, and when we got to NPR, there wasn't any. But I, so anyway, I knew what the basic magazine format, which became All Things Considered, I, I picked it up there. And the other thing, was they while I was there, they were going through a tremendous and rather painful transition from their old uh, structure of radio, which was uh, the home service, the light service, and the third program, which were basically all uh, class level. The light service was of working class. The uh, home service was for more middle and upper class, and then the third program, which was for the artist. And so they were going from that to formats. Radio 1, rock and roll. Radio 2, middle of the road, music and uh, sports. Radio 3, classical. Radio 4, talk. And so the notion of having complementary services was stuck in my head and I brought that back and I think in some respects that may have been the 
I'm not saying if I hadn't brought it back, it wouldn't have happened anyway. But the idea of having multiple formatted stations that would serve different audiences, that was totally new for educational radio. Hmm. Educational radio was there to, well, serve everybody or maybe serve nobody, but it was it was not certainly audience-oriented. And the notion of the dual service uh, or multiple service programming uh, uh, was became eventually the dogma of educational or public radio, including in Wisconsin. Of course, in a really splendid way with the uh, uh, the two networks of Wisconsin Public Radio, which uh, you helped to oversee uh, for, for many, many years. I had right. never heard the story of of the possible genesis or one aspect of that in terms of where that idea came from. For no, those it came from the BBC. Hmm. Well, thank you, BBC. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today on The Morning Show with Jack Mitchell, one of the most valuable contributors to the early days of National Public Radio. In fact, National Public Radio's very first employee back in 1970 and the very first producer for uh, All Things Considered, which, of course, is still... Uh, a, a, a proud part of, of NPR's uh, daily programming, and also for many, many years, director of Wisconsin Public Radio uh, for more than 20 years. So, Jack Mitchell, uh, take us back to those days when you were literally the only employee of National Public Radio. I assume you were not the sole employee for terribly long, but... No, three, uh, three, for three weeks, I was at National Public Radio. <laughs> uh, the I was hired by the president, by the person who was designated to be president, but he couldn't start until after Labor Day. And I was uh, available, <laughs> and so I started in early August, and then uh, and so if I, I ran the office. I scheduled a couple of meetings of the of the board, the NPR board, and made arrangements for that. And uh, uh, you know, it's always just mechanical, uh, clerical kind of things that sure. I was doing for those weeks. Right, in that the in that very very early period when National Public Radio has, has just been created, uh, how much difference of opinion was there in terms of exactly what this should be or to what towards what goals should we be working? I mean, were there vastly and dramatically conflicting visions of what NPR was meant to be or should be? Yeah, uh, very, very good question because in... In many ways, there was no vision uh, because public television knew what it wanted to be. And there was some discussion there, arguments there about what it should be. But deep down, they all knew what they wanted. Radio, nobody had even thought about it. I mean, there was suddenly, because of the work of these couple of people, got snuck into the act, and suddenly there was a million dollars there to use, and nobody really knew in fact, I had much thought about what it should be, except that it had to be li- a live network. It wasn't going to be because educational radio distributed programming on tape by mail, and this was going to be live, interconnected, uh, just like NBC and CBS. 
That we knew, but that was about it. And it was basically the lack of vision that was most impressive, which allowed somebody like me to have some influence. I was only 28 or so. I was was young. Hmm. And I could have influence because there was nobody else. And I'd been to the BBC. I had some ideas. I knew a little bit, but it did. uh, It was a peculiar situation. Right. I think most people thought it should be. Uh, basically, just like educational radio, only a little better, more money spent on programs, higher quality. And educational radio back then was a lot of 15-minute and half-hour programs that were quite specialized, mostly interviews of one sort or another. A lot of it came from European broadcasters. Uh, the And then the thing that actually people listened to on educational radio was classical music. So there were a big contingent of people who thought that we ought to basically uh, just emphasize the classical music. Uh, that was not viable uh, if we were, because in the legislation, this was part of the great society, and educational television was promising to do all kinds of, you know, invest, you know, in journalism, discussions. Uh, representing representing the uh, minorities, uh, being very inclusive. It was going to be for everybody. And to decide you're going to be a classical music service isn't for everybody. It serves a few people very well, but most people not at all. So it had to be something different from that. And there's a man who is actually from Wisconsin named Bill Seemering, who was this saintly man, he's uh, just a wonderful human being who had dreams of a better society, and he was very poetic in the way he wrote. And he uh, was uh, wrote uh, the, the, the uh, founding document for NPR. Uh, he was on the board of directors, which was talked about very much the same kinds of things as the uh, Carnegie Commission about bringing all kinds of people together because radio in those days of course we were it was very was formatted and so you had your country station you had your black oriented station you had your middle of the road you had your all the talks you know had all these specialized for different audiences and he wanted to have this place that was for everybody and it was beautiful uh, how you were going to do that was a little vague, uh, but he had people, he could get people in tears about his, you know, <laughs> this wonderful vision of what we could all be. And uh, that was adopted as our philosophy, uh, the, uh, that we will basically something that brings everyone together, not individual programs for different audiences, which is what educational radio did or what might have done and what public television tried to do, but a programming that would be for everybody all the time. And uh, today, inclusion, diversity, etc. but those phrases were not anywhere on the radar back in 1967, 68. Uh, when, well, when all, I'm sorry, yeah, 67, 68, when all this was coming together. So he, uh, so he was made program director, and he then 
after months of trying to figure out how all this was supposed to work, he they kind of threw up their hands and said, well, somebody has to be in charge of this. And so he uh, appointed me to try to make sense of all of all this with all things considered. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> and that's what, so I did not, I was the first producer, but for the first nine or 10 months of all things considered, there was no producer. Mm. And probably <laughs> if we could uh, hear examples of some of those first shows, we, we might not be surprised to hear that. I suppose that there was, no, it was, a, it was, it was a mess. Right. A, uh, or a free for all or a, a little of both. Yeah, free form. <laughs> Shall we say free form? <laughs> but, or, but I used to say that whoever got, to work the first thing in the morning would decide what that program was going to be that day. Hmm. And there were many among the staff, there were all kinds of different agendas. Absolutely. So I was given the job of trying to pull it all together and uh, sort of did. Hmm. By the way, I've heard a rumor uh, that that one of the most important meetings uh, in terms of either organizing NPR or maybe specifically putting together All Things Considered that such a meeting might have occurred at uh, at the Wingspread Conference Center uh, on, on the north side of Racine. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, it wasn't all things considered, but the uh, the, the original board that, that included uh, uh, Carl Schmidt, who was the director of educational radio in Wisconsin, who was one of my predecessors, he was a very influential member of the board. He is the one who brought Seamering onto the board because, and they met at Wingspread uh, for one of their organizing meetings before we went on the air. Mm, but fair. there were several dis- important meetings that they had where they tried to sort out the philosophy, and uh, where Seamering eventually uh, emerged as the spokesperson for mm. these people who were there, there were personality feuds and you know long time rivalries between this state university and that state university and they lost in football back in 22 you know all this <laughs> all this stuff it was all backward looking uh was simmering was forward looking mm. by the way vague. i i made a note of a of what i believe is a quote from mr simmering from back in those days talking about what this new thing called National Public Radio could be at one point saying it would reflect the diversity of America and let the country hear itself. Yep, that's that's Seabury. Mm. Yep. <laughs> I can see what you mean about uh, him being a, an, an inspiring figure and one looking forward. And it's interesting to think about words like that being said during as turbulent a period in our nation's history as the late 60s, uh, yeah. Into the early well, that 70s. was the whole thing. It was a, it was very divisive, and that's why it was so important. Uh, he was uh, head of the educational radio station in Buffalo, New York, and they had a this standard student demonstration that was closed down the campus over the Vietnam War, and he put on a program in which uh, the he had the administrators of the university and the students together and had tried to take the uh, mediator's role in all that to try to figure out where they agreed. And, you know, that was the the notion of breaking down the barriers uh, to uh, become a a place where agreements were negotiated. Black and white, you know, he was 
he set up a studio in the black ghetto in Buffalo to uh, make sure their voices were heard. Uh, so he was innovative, you know, and uh, it was uh, more, if you look at the reality of what they actually did, it wasn't all that wonderful, but it was certainly the right idea. Hmm. He was trying to do the, uh, you know, to, to make a difference in the world, you know, with a terribly divided world. Right. So when it came to this brand new program called All Things Considered uh, as part of the, the, the schedule of this fledgling thing called National Public Radio, as you've already talked about, you were brought in uh, after a, a, a time of kind of creative chaos, shall we say, to try to bring some order to it and maybe formulate some kind of format that would give the, the, the program more, yeah. more sense of order and identity and so on. How difficult was it to do that? I mean, I am guessing that uh, your efforts were not universally welcomed by those no. whom were being directly impacted by them. That's right. There were a couple of people who uh, refused to work for me <laughs> and, and seemingly said, okay. <laughs> yeah, <and> so <laughs> they went off on their own. Uh, he, he was a very sweet man. Uh, but I, it was... I think people were looking for some kind of a direction, and I had a few people who understood what I was thinking, and what you know, and, you know, Susan Stamberg being the most important. Uh, she was a tape editor. You know, she didn't. She was not on the air, or she did a few things on the air, but mostly she was just. Uh, well, she had a similar vision, and I made her host <laughs> of the whole program. She was a half-time employee of the organization. And uh, so I, but I made her host, and uh, there were others who were, um, uh, were were understanding, but a few no, hmm. you weren't. And of course, the stations mostly mostly they just wanted something that was made sense. Hmm. And after about a year after I t took over, uh, we had the, the annual public radio conference, and uh, the first one had been just after the show started and it was they were brutal about criticizing what was going on and i, I was at that thing and took a lot of that uh seemingly took more of it uh but then the next year after we'd gotten the thing more or less together uh the just the tone everybody is so grateful <laughs> that mm. finally there was some structure and it wasn't what everybody wanted in fact it wasn't what anybody wanted but at least it had some kind of form to it and you, you know super things like in the beginning the newscast would be anywhere because maybe the news wasn't the most important thing that happened today Maybe a guy got a job in uh, uh, in in, uh, in Racine who, who was unemployed. He got a job. Maybe that should be what we should start with. And I said, nice idea, but no, we're going to start with the news. <laughs> and so we fixed the newscast, one at 5 o'clock and the other at 6 o'clock. And they'd be there every day at the same time. You know, it was make it dependable. It's like make it radio. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And that's really radio is habit, and so you have to have a form and a structure. Right. Yeah. Well, and and of course, and the other thing is, again, you're talking about things like dependability and form and structure at a time when a whole lot of people, including a whole lot of creative people, you know, did not necessarily think 
within those those concepts of dependability yeah. and form and structure. And right. so yeah. it's it's an intriguing sort of clash of worlds. And uh, fortunately, uh, something extraordinary emerged from it. Could we talk for just a moment about Susan Stamberg and just and I think even beyond that, uh, just the significance of voice and personality uh, yep. in terms of of radio and uh, and what you were thinking about when, for instance, you made this choice for Susan Stamberg, uh, who, of course, now is so indelibly linked to all things considered in public radio in general. Uh, but, of course, also in some respects, as you've already alluded to, was a somewhat unconventional choice for such a position. Yeah, she was the first woman to host a national program of that sort. Uh, not, you know, there were women, women's programs, but a program that was for the general audience. Uh, but she was also, she had a rather strong Bronx accent. I mean, she was not your neutral uh, golden voice. She had a nice voice. It was kind of a cigarette-laden voice, but uh, it was memorable, deep. And uh, But the thing that I, about her is that she really communicated with listeners. She wasn't just she didn't wasn't just reading a script, and that's so much of what I hear today is is that. Uh, but she was a, an engaged person, and she would write her own scripts. But she would when she was talking to somebody, she really wanted to get into inside of them, and she didn't just go through a prepared list of, of questions. Uh, and she so she had this writing style that was very strong, but interviewing and just the fact that she was not reading. And she she was reading, but she didn't sound like she was reading. It's interesting, her, her co-host in the earliest days was Mike Waters, who uh, was had a wonderful voice, but... Uh, but he, he could he just was was not able to read uh and so he talked and he would look at what he was supposed to say and he would scribble a few notes but it wasn't sentences and then he would just speak and beautifully uh and eloquently uh he was this was something of a handicap in terms of trying to hand him material but between Susan and Mike these were two people talking to you not reading to you, mm. and uh, it, that was important to me that, that that we have that. But she was also a woman, and the fact that was very very controversial. And I have a memo or from the president of NPR saying this is uh, we should use her a different way. She is not what we want as a host, uh, but. I seemingly disagreed, and I disagreed, and we just ignored him. Hmm. <laughs> and went ahead. But he was reflecting the station's impact. You know, he was getting—he's he, the one that took the complaints from the stations, and uh, he was reflecting that. Uh, but it was controversial. But it didn't matter very much because we didn't have any listeners. Hmm. So, you know, we did this <laughs> radical thing, but nobody much knew because nobody much listened. Right. We only had about two million people nationally. And of course, uh, that will... know, across the whole country in our audience. And, well, okay, that sounds like a lot in your living room, but it's, you know, by mass media style, you know, standards, it's not exactly mass. 
Well, that changes, of course, uh, over the course of time in pretty dramatic fashion. By the way, is there very much in the way of recorded legacy from those very, very early and somewhat chaotic uh, yep. years of every of, program. Every program was taped. Wow! And I think it's all. It's either in the Library of Congress, or I think it's the Library of Congress. Has mm. it? It would be interesting to do some investigating and and hear NPR in its infancy, uh, and uh, yep. help us appreciate uh, where it has come today. Yeah. Well, some of it was brilliant. I mean, there was it was very. It was just uh, there were great moments in those early days, but uh, it was not consistent. Right. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today with Jack Mitchell, who was actually employee number one for National Public Radio back in 1970 and very much helped to shape NPR's All Things Considered. Uh, And in our last few minutes, I want to talk about the next chapter of your life, uh, which is when you uh, became director of Wisconsin Public Radio. Uh, If what I'm reading is correct, that was the year 1976, and you served Wisconsin Public Radio for just over 20 years. Can you tell us a little bit about that shift from Washington, D.C. to uh, the middle of Wisconsin, and what kind of a drastic shift, how drastic a shift was that? I mean, did you feel like you were moving to another planet? No, no. Uh, I'm from Detroit. Uh, I started at the University of Michigan radio station. Uh, I did work in Wisconsin for a year uh, between after before I went to the BBC. I was here uh, in in Madison, so I was uh, I think it was called public affairs director uh, of the station and did public affairs types programs. And so I was. It was. I was familiar with the place. Uh, uh, NPR was going through a, a tremendous growth pains. Uh, it was the within a year after I left, uh, the vice president, the president were both fired. Uh, a new board of directors came in. They hired a new president, Frank Mankiewicz. And so what I had, uh, I, I could see that uh, it, I was not going to be as uh, a bigger factor in NPR if I even lasted, because who knows what the new people would want to do. So I, I knew I had to leave, or I should leave. And then I was offered, the manager of WHA Radio in Madison died, and uh, her boss uh who I had known in Madison, uh, asked me to come back as manager. And it was uh, it, it was really quite wonderful in a way because uh, at NPR, everything was terribly political and you know, fraught with uh, difficult personalities, talented personalities. But uh, and it came back to Madison, which was a very calm, uh, settled place. And uh, I... I, I unsettled it, but when I came back, it was uh, like it was extremely peaceful, very nice. Hmm. So tell us about unsettling Wisconsin Public Radio. I, I, I have yeah. a I have a pretty good idea of what you're talking about, but maybe our listeners don't. Yeah. Well, uh, it was unlike edu- uh, like most like NPR. 
WHA and the state radio network continued to be a series of 15-minute, half-hour programs. Uh, the philosophy was let's have uh, a music program followed by a talk program. It was, it was one after, you know, it was interspersed. It was 15 minutes music serenade and then uh, 15 minutes of uh, uh, Belgian press review. It was, it, was, it was extreme, but that's kind of where where they were. And so I wanted to format uh, like the BBC. And so uh, we had – this is the politics that nobody wants to care about and cares about, but basically the idea was that we would have a classical music station and a talk station. And uh, we would sort all this stuff out into a lot more programming because we're doubling the amount of programming – but we're also uh, of simplifying it and, and instituted several magazine programs or tried to, which were sort of a poor man's all things considered in the morning and uh, another one at noon uh, that were incorporated a lot of what WHA had been doing and doing wonderfully. It was, it was a highly, it was the best public radio station in the country prior to NPR. Biggest, biggest budget. Uh, it was the pioneer. It gave us people like Carl Schmidt uh, and uh, uh, Bill Seamring. They came out of Wisconsin, you know. So it was, uh, it was a good place, but a very stuck in the past place. It hadn't really changed since the 1950s, and uh, we tried to format it and uh, you know change. The, make it more listener friendly. You know, it's interesting as you were describing the early days of National Public Radio, and also in a sense describing Wisconsin Public Radio. Maybe this is true to a lesser extent. I'm reminded of what little I know about the early days of commercial television, and of course, I, I wasn't alive then. Uh, but uh, from what I understand. Uh, especially the very, very earliest days of commercial television, were kind of a mess in terms of from day to day what would happen, and it would just be this crazy quilt. I mean, crazy, yeah. in very literal yeah. sense, and, and absolutely no overarching sense of, of what this network should represent or who is listening when. And, 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 and it stands to reason, I mean, with this brand new thing that has just been created. And so I suppose in some respects we shouldn't be the least bit surprised that the early days of, for instance, public radio uh, would be fraught with some of that same confusion, that same yeah. sense of who are we or what should we be? Yeah. Yeah. What should we be? That was That's the issue, isn't it? Uh, we could be anything or we thought we could be. <laughs> and different people had different ideas of what that ought to be. But you had to reject a lot of ideas. You can't, uh, you know, one one person, one station was advocating that we do uh, a national farm show. Well, okay, not a terrible idea, except that farming is different in Florida than it is in Minnesota. Hmm. And, you know, it's not probably something you should do nationally. But that, that was an idea. Hmm. And, uh, you know, so there were some not necessarily screwy ideas, but you just couldn't do all that. Right. Especially NPR, we had no money. We got ten percent of the CPB pot, but uh, it wasn't really that much money. 
mm-hmm. and we were terribly understaffed. We, it's, in fact, it's miraculous to me. We, I mean, all things considered, staff, it was me and an associate uh, producer and about four production assistants. That was it. Plus, we had the reporters we could call on. But it was very, very it was high intensity, and that was one of the things that uh, you know, sort of overwhelmed a lot of us. Sure. But, uh, although, I ima- although I imagine you maybe look back on those days with a certain amount of affection uh, in in the same way that uh, a lot of, in the same way that a lot of married couples sometimes look back at the early days when money was tight and uh, we didn't have real furniture and uh, a lot of, but, but we, we made it somehow, (laughs) you know, we made it together. It was the most exciting period of my life uh, because, and you were just scratching it out and, you know, you were barely get on the air sometimes, and it was unreliable. It was touch and go often, but there was a vision, hmm. and uh, that did. And people believed in it. Hmm. I mean, the the folks, well, not everybody, I suppose, but the folks that worked most directly with me, they were as committed as I was hmm. to making this thing work, and they put an awful lot of work into it, and uh, were never quite appreciated enough. Sure. The one person who's still around from that time is Ira Flato, hmm. who does Science Friday. Yes. NPR. Or, and uh, he, Ira, was uh, one of Seamering's students in Buffalo who came to work for us. Uh, real bundle of energy, wonderful young man uh, who wanted to be on the radio. Hmm. And Part of my job was keeping him off the radio because he sounded like a 12-year-old. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, so he was, I can do this. Oh, well, we'll get something. You can write the script. And we'll, you know. Well, he, he finally did get on the radio, <laughs> and, and he's done very well, and he's still at it. I was just going to say, he, he, he got on the radio and then, and then some. And, yeah, no, uh, he's... And absolutely great. Uh, Let's go back to Wisconsin Public Radio because I want to just ask you about the fact that, uh, you know, you've touched on the fact that NPR couldn't do everything for, you know, the whole nation. I mean, it's you have to kind of think within uh, certain certain boundaries of possibility uh, right. when it comes to even within just the borders of Wisconsin. We're still talking about a sizable state and quite distinct in terms of extreme rural Wisconsin versus the part of the metropolitan Milwaukee area, for instance, sure. and and how does Wisconsin public radio serve that that whole population and, of course, even beyond its borders? But uh, what did you think most about as director of Wisconsin public radio in terms of yeah. who you were serving and how best to serve them? Yeah, very, very important. Uh, the educational radio philosophy was we are here in Madison we have wisdom and much, much good stuff, and we are going to share it with everybody else. That was, you know, the education. No, we were educating, educate the state. Uh, public radio uh, was to be more community-oriented. And so in addition to the dual service, you know, two, state, two networks, uh, it was important to me uh, probably more important to me than almost anybody else because it never quite caught on. I wanted to have regional, significant regional operations. And so we got 
And we did it mostly by t- taking over the underperforming university stations, uh, WGBH, WGBW in, at the University of, of Wisconsin Green Bay had a radio station, and they didn't do much with it. And so we said, well, we, we'll take it over. We'll run it for you. And we'll have two services there. We'll have the one we put on WGBW and the one we've put on uh, the WPNE, which is the big station up there. And so we did that, and I spent maybe 10 years going around the state uh, trying to set up these arrangements. And we did it just about everywhere. Never pulled it off in Milwaukee, uh, which is, you know, obviously the most important market in the state. But everywhere else, we have, uh, we had a region, originally we had the morning host, the morning edition host was in the region. They weren't in, it wasn't in Madison. There was a person in Madison who served Madison. But in Stevens Point, we had a person up there who was the morning edition host. It was her and Bob Edwards were the two folks, uh, because I figured that, in the morning, people want, first of all, local weather, but just the sense of that there's a real person who's their, their, their representative. And so that regional uh, operation, the idea of regional centers, uh, that rather never took off after I left. Uh, the of people who didn't see that as very important. It never went away, but it never prospered either. Hmm. And uh, we'll see how it evolves. I mean, your station, WGTD, which is affiliated with the network, is more independent. You know, it's uh, you know oh, your program. I mean, that doesn't exist in the other stations that are part of Wisconsin Public Radio. Right, and we have a, a morning uh, news director who, in a sense, anchors our local newscasts in the midst yeah. of Morning Edition to give a wonderful balance of the national versus the state versus the local. And yeah. I can appreciate yeah. uh, the vision with which you, you did that. Here's a yeah, last... Well, that's what it mm-hmm. should have been. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And maybe will be. Yes. Maybe will be yet. Here's a last question. I know that one of the things that is a, a reason why probably you love radio as much as I love radio is the strong connection we have to listeners, uh, even though we never see them, even though typically they never even see our faces, but they hear our voices in their living rooms. It does mean that an audience feels a certain sense of ownership and uh, and also uh, uh, will be likewise then sometimes resistant when you're suddenly moving program X or, or eliminating program X or flipping this over to there, and it's like we are disrupting people's lives in a way that uh, they and We do. are. Yes. We are. It's that people we depend on it. Right. And you pull this plug out from under them, you know, it's, that's understandable. Right. Uh, and I certainly experienced a lot of that. <laughs> so uh, how did you ultimately kind of come to terms with that part of the job? Um, well, uh, you... You just have to have something of tough skin, uh, which I don't have, actually, but I, <laughs> I put it on. Uh, they, uh, it, you have to assume that you are, the decisions you are making are going to be better in the long run, and ultimately you're going to serve more people. And ultimately, even the people that are criticizing you are going to like what they're going to get. They're losing something, but they'll like what they get better. And it 
basically works. I mean, there are many changes, but look at the, you know, the size of the audience. Is, was Our statewide audience in, when I came in 76 was 60,000 people. Now it's, uh, I don't know what it is now, over close to half a million. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, the changes, no, they're not all because of me by any means, but <laughs> it was that, the, you know, changes, changes were made, demographics changed, FM radio changed. That was a big factor on it, uh, that FM radio surged in the 1970s and 80s at the same time public radio was beginning. And if, if, if Congress had not mandated FM radios in cars, which it did, uh, public radio might never have really taken off hmm. the way it did. Funny the things to which we need to be uh, grateful for in terms of what we now take for granted. Well, Jack Mitchell, I know uh, a lot of public radio listeners are deeply appreciative of the role that you played at the outset uh, at National Public Radio and the role you played for so many years uh, as the head of Wisconsin Public Radio. And uh, on their behalf, I thank you, and I thank you also for being my guest on The Morning Show. What a pleasure to speak with you again. Best wishes to you. Thank you.